we just thank you for this evening. We ask that you lead and guide as we look at your word and, and lead us to where you'd want us to be. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, Psalm 69. We're almost to the end of that one and might finish it tonight and, and see what happens here. Maybe go into 70. We'll see. We're going to read the whole psalm. Verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters are coming unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overwhelm me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. My, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from you. Let not them that wait on you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek you be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because of, for, my, for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brothers and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of your house have, has eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach you are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me. I was a song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me, not, let me be delivered from them that hate me. And out of the deep waters, let not the flood, water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for, my, for your loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And hide not your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies." You have known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My, my adversaries are all before you. Reproach has fallen, has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which would have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened, and let that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom, whom you have smitten, and they talk to the grief of those who you have wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not, become, not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not written in with the up, up, with the righteous. I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that has horns and hoofs. The humble shall see and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord hears the poor and despises not his prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas, everything that moves therein. And for God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have, have it in possession. The seed also of his servant shall inherit it, 
and they that love his name shall dwell therein. All right, we're going to, we left off uh, at, at closing off on 28, and we're going to start with 29 to finish this chapter off. But David says here, I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And this is very interesting because poor literally means weak or humble. And David's saying, you know, after all of this stuff, all these attacks that he's going through, the Messianic Psalms that this is, I am just humble and sorrowful, full of sorrow. And that, that idea of sorrow is to cause, to, to, to grow, to make, uh, excuse me, to, uh, to, excuse me, what am I? Sorrow, it means to overtake. <laughs> so he's been overtaken in all this, this sorrow. And we see this is a very sorrowful song. And he says, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. This is important for us. God is the one that elevates us. God is the one that exalts us. When he comes into our life, we are to let him be our defender. He is the one that we're to hide in. And then he gives us the praise. <laughs> and I've said this over and over. I love God's plan. It's so simple. He says, you just let me do the work, and he gives us the reward for the work that he does. And this is what David is saying here. God will. What verse are we at? I'm oh, sorry, 29. Oh. Psalm 69, 29. Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> so he said, Your salvation, let your salvation, God, O Lord, set me on high. Because we are hidden in him, he exalts us. He, he puts us up. He, he lifts us up. And he gives, he lets, he in one sense lets us get some of his glory because we, we let him work through us. And he's going to give us the reward. And David's acknowledging this. God, it's you. I'm humble. I'm, I'm nobody, but you're going to set me up. And we see that. And we, we want to keep, always keep in mind is that anything that we get that glorifies us in any way, shape, or form really is God's anyway. And we need to stay humble in all that even though we're being raised up. And we see that all over the time. In verse 30, I will praise the name of God with song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. And I love this. I love to sing. I love to see God's word name raised up in song and when we're singing to him and I've shared this when I used to work in the restaurants I used to all the time on a really rough hard time I'd love to take the trash out and just sing a song for the five minutes it took to walk out to the dumpster and walk back and just focus my mind back on God and it was just a quick way just a just a quick praise song you know whatever that might be whatever popped in my head I would just sing to him and just come back and my mind was set on him and it, it changed my way of thinking. And sometimes that just a little song is all you need. Uh, or just a prayer. Anything that focuses you back on God for just a period of time. Because it is so easy to get overwhelmed. And our flesh oftentimes will try to respond and, and just to focus back on God. And let him be our strength. Let him be our protector. Let him be our defense and just refocus. And this is the value of, of knowing scripture at times. Just to meditate on a scripture for just a, or a song or something, just to say, God, I'm focusing on you. In the middle of great problems, one of the verses I focus on quite often is, for all things work together for good for those who called according to the purpose of God. And when I'm in the middle of something that makes no sense and it seems to be pressure and, and everything looks bad, I will grab hold of that verse because I know it's a promise of God. I'm going, God, this is your promise. 
I may not understand this. I can't see how it's any good, but God, I'm going to hold on to this promise. I'm at the end of the rope, and this is, I get, I'm put a knot at the end of the rope with this verse, and you're going <laughs> to, and I'm hanging on. And sometimes that's all we can do. Just say, God, you said, and come back to him. And this is why we want to memorize scripture. This is why we want to know scripture. So that when, when we're in hard times, we can concentrate on God. This is what you said. Yeah. You've said there's nothing that's going to, no temptation is going to overtake me, but such is common. You know, nothing unusual. And one of the lies Satan likes to use on us is a real simple lie. He wants us to be convinced that whatever we're going through, nobody else is going through. Okay, and that's what he's going to try all the time. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is so important. Nothing is uncommon that comes my way. Other people have gone through it. Other people are, have gone through it, are going through it, and will go through it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, nothing new under the sun. If you go back to Ecclesiastes, Solomon said there's nothing new. No new temptation, no new, nothing new. So when Satan comes around and says, well, gee, you're so terrible. Look how bad it is. You're, you're the only one that's going, that has this problem. You know, everybody you know, if, you, if they knew what you were doing, they would be so shocked. But you might find that others had that same problem. Mm -hmm. And if not others in your direct circle, others do have that problem. But Satan likes to make us think that this is our problem. Nobody's ever gone through the problems that we have. Nobody's ever gone through as bad that we're going through. And if you ever think that, go read the, go read the book of Job. <laughs> Because nobody's ever gone through what Job has gone that I've ever seen. To have everything stripped away from them is a pretty bad thing. And you, and you read Job and it, it's happening blow after blow after blow. The one guy gets, his, gets the news in, he doesn't even have time to recover and the next guy's there giving him bad news. And I haven't met too many people that have gone through what Job has gone through. Yes, you may have a long series of bad news and everything, but I've never, I haven't been through and I don't know too many people that have been hit after hit after hit before they even have time to recover. So no matter how bad we think it is, go look at Job and see that you don't have it bad at all. But even if it is the same as Job, at least you come back and say, somebody else has been through it. Somebody else is through it. Somebody else has been there. And so David here is saying, God, I'm going to sing songs. I'm going to sing praise. I'm going to magnify your name with thanksgiving. And this is so true. If we start focusing on God and we magnify God, you cannot be sad when you're magnifying God. <laughs> Just no way because you start focusing on God and he'll start showing us what we are going through and how mighty he is. When we, we praise him... At least I have never found a time when I could praise him and sing songs and praise to him that I can feel sad at the same time. I just don't believe you can worship God and, and, and be sad at the, same, at the same moment. And you focus on God, and you're going to be receiving those blessings. Psalm 69. I was focusing on the sign of Peyton. It's in my kitchen. <laughs> but he says, I'm going to magnify you. you know, lift you up. Exalt you. I don't know if you've ever been there where you've just spent time exalting God, just lifting him up and praising him. This is the value of songs. This is the value, value of prayer. This is the value of getting into his word, that we can lift him up and say, God, you're wonderful. You're great. You're, you're, 
you're so much better than anything else, and thank you. And then you get there, and then, then you realize, as great as he is, he loves us and wants us. And that's an amazing him. thing, that he wants us. I praise him so much now because for all the years that I haven't, I have to. There's not enough time in the day to do it. And this is, this is why I listen to a lot of different preachers and teachers so that I learn things and, and see, hear God being lifted up. Singing songs of praise, being able to lift up these songs. I can't go through the book of Psalms without finding songs that I've, that I've sung in churches and stuff. And, and singing choruses, singing parts of hymns. Whatever it takes for us, whatever we take and we just lift God up. And say, God, you are wonderful. When we, when we do our prayers, we, had, we, should, should give it, we confess our sins, we give him adoration, we think, give him thanksgiving. And we spend time, and in true prayer, we spend more time praising God, or should, spend more time praising and thanking God than we do giving our requests. Unfortunately, most of us as Christians, we get to be, hi God, here I am, here's my list of, here's my list of requests. And Is it bad to pray not really about you, about everybody else a lot? No. I try to pray for God first, but then I always pray for uh, I pray more for others than I do for myself. Idea. I've always been that I way. Forget, i got to pray for me at the end. Yeah. <laughs> i got to get me too. But God is just wanting us to, to lift him up, to magnify him, to praise him. And it, it makes us feel better when we concentrate on God as well. In verse uh, 31 he says, This also shall please the Lord better than an, than an ox or bullock that has horns and hooves. And so this, this, this is talking about lifting him up in songs and praise. And we think about this all the time. When we think about the Old Testament, we think about sacrifices and, and the offerings. In so many places, God says that the sacrifices are a stench to him because it's just ritual. He wants their heart involved. And this is what David's saying, you know, God wants the praise, he wants the songs, he wants the, the being lifted up rather than, okay, God, I'm coming with my here's, my, here's my ox, here's my goat, here's my sheep, here's my sacrifice. For us, it would be, here I am on Sunday, God, I, I'm here. You know, I, I'm worshiping you, uh, you know, maybe. <laughs> but, but I am in church, and God's saying, well, your heart's really not here. And if your heart's not there, you're better off not even there because you're just there. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I know the difference when I'm there just to be there and when I'm there worshiping God. And there's a lot of people who come to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. Mm -hmm. You know, rain, shine, sit, not sit, they're at church. But their heart is somewhere else. And they might as well not be at church because they're just not worshiping God. But when you're there worshiping Him, it's a different experience altogether. But you might hear something. What's well, better? Yeah, it's better that you're there. That'll squeeze in and say, ta-da, here yeah, maybe, I am. Maybe something will get there. But if you're always there, just you know, it's one thing just to be there in obedience if you normally worship. But there's some people that just come to church because that's what they're supposed to do. And they're just like the Jews. i got to go to the temple on, on the Sabbath. I've got to bring my sacrifice. My sacrifice is given. Everything's okay. Go home. Synagogue. The cynic, well, I'm talking about temple back oh, then, but, uh, but you know, they go to the temple, offer their sacrifice. Okay, God, we're, you, you and I are you know, good because I gave you my offering, and God's saying, 
your heart wasn't there. You weren't doing it for the right. Yes, you gave, but you didn't give because you were worshiping. Or I don't like it when people come. They will praise hallelujah, this and that all the time. But I'm thinking, to me, it's funny for them. Um, on some people, I think it is. Because they have to kind of prove that they're... But you want to be careful with that because you can't judge their heart and where they're at. You know, it's, we want to be very careful well, that we don't judge people. Yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of phonies out there, and there are a lot of you know, and there there can be phonies. But you know, our problem, we have enough problems of our own rather than sitting there looking at others, and that's the key that we have to look at. I'm not looking at others; I hear others. Yeah. Well, know. even hearing them just you know, it, yeah. Because if we start looking at what they're doing or saying, we're going to get caught up in probably negative, negatives with it. Well, I don't even, I'm not even really trying to look. Yeah. It's just, you know how some things irritate you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. No, I understand what you're saying. I'm just trying to say, you know, we need to no, ignore that as much to, as possible. I'm not judging people. Yeah. I would never judge them because only God can do that. But I'm just saying, you know. This is just my opinion. Okay. Yeah. But I've seen plenty of, plenty of people who seem to be fake. But, and one of the greatest stories I've ever had is when I was, I was teaching a, a teenage class one time as a guest speaker for them. And there was this one kid, his chair was kicked back. I could have, would have swore that he was asleep and not paying attention to me. And then later that week, I met with his father because his father and I and another guy met every week. And he goes, man, my son just couldn't stop talking about what you, what you taught that, on that day. And I'm going, and I just told him, if I was to pick anybody who wasn't listening, it would have been this kid who appeared to be asleep for all practical purposes. But, you know, so we want to be careful how we judge things because we never know what we're seeing or, what, or what, how well, real somebody or is not real. The thing that when I hear it, I pray that the person is really honest about it. Yeah. I pray that he's not just a front And the other thing we have to be careful of, the way people worship God it may be different than us and it looks phony to us because it would be phony to us, and, and, but it's real That's to them. Too, yeah. And so we got to be careful because... Not everybody's going to worship God the way we do. Not everybody's going to study the way we do. Not everybody's going to pray, you know, pray the way we do. Uh, so we want to be careful with that and not try to say, well, because it's not the way I would do it, they're being a phony or being fake or, or irritating me because it's, I wouldn't do what they did. And again, so it's, it's just a hard attitude of showing them love and just say, it's real unless God tells me, unless God can really show me otherwise and and he's not going to show you their life because it may be real to them. And so we want to be careful with all of that. And judging becomes so easy. Judging is so easy for us to, to do without even thinking about it. Well, gee, I wouldn't do that. What, you know, that, that person's being weird. Yeah. I've got a personality like her, though. It's in, in me that I'm just cognizant of everything that's going on with I want to be or not. Mm -hmm. I'm not against it, just that to me it seems like, like I said, maybe this is weird or you don't believe in it, but I, I kind of believe body language and I can, on certain things, not on everything. You got to be careful with body language too because sometimes you can be misread pretty easily. Mm -hmm. uh, there's things that 
I mean, I've listened, I've studied it, and I look at some of them, and I'm going, some of what they say on body language is pretty ridiculous. I have never studied body language. Okay. It's just my sense, mm -hmm. like your sixth sense. Yeah. No, I've never studied it. But you want to be careful with that, with that whole thing, because Satan can get involved with that, too, and, and draw in. I have to force myself to focus. Yeah. Especially when you're in a church with 500 other people, there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. Especially at Calvary, where there's a lot of standing, a lot of shaking around. And yeah, so it's a matter no, of just paying that attention. That I would like, but just, uh, I'll drop it. Yeah. It's just something. Yeah. But God is saying, you know, He wants our heart more than our ritual practices. And it could be the same thing, because I've met, I have met personally over the years people that go to church all the time. There was one lady that I knew that she went to church every time the doors were open. And her husband was being recommended to be a deacon, and he was willing to, so we at that place we interviewed both the husband and the wife. And we asked the husband, tell us your testimony, how did you get saved? And he gave us his testimony. We asked her, and her answer was, I've always been better than everybody I know. And so the follow-up question is, so when did you recognize that you were a sinner in need of Jesus' salvation? And her answer was, I've always been better than everybody that I know. Nobody should ever say that. No, that should never have been said. No, nobody should. But see, I had already known because I was the deacon to this family, I already had a sense that she didn't know God. And her answer pretty much proved to me that she didn't know God and unfortunately, she died in that same attitude as far as I know. Now, I'm not saying she wasn't saved, that she didn't at some point in her life have some experience where she recognized God. But from her own words, I have to say, she didn't know God. She didn't know that she was a sinner. She didn't understand that she was a sinner in need of the gospel. She thought she had, was a good person and that that was going to be enough. So we've got to be careful because whatever we see on ritual... <laughs> You know, somebody could look good and not know God. And that's why when, when I look at, it, look at a church, I'm going, God, how many, how many people really know you? And the thing that scares me in our, in our country is this whole idea of, you know, I've heard people say, well, why don't you try Jesus? There's no trying Jesus. You either accept him or you don't accept him. There's no put Jesus to a trial and say, if he does good things for me, I'm going to follow him because that's not going to happen. He wants complete trust or nothing. And if you don't have that complete trust in him, he's not coming in and making you a new creature and, and coming into your life. Now, I understand what they're saying when they say try Jesus and all that, but it's a very bad statement, a very bad theology. Because you don't try him. You say, I'm committed. Well, believe me, I've, been, I've street evangelized with enough people that... I, I street evangelized with one person who swore that all she's got to do is get them to say the sinner's prayer and God would hold them to it. And I go, no, you making them say the sinner's prayer is giving them false hope. You know, they're, they, and they have to believe it. They have to believe, yeah, they have to believe it. And so, but here in this verse, David is saying, God, you want my heart more than you want my ritual sacrifice. And it's even true for our day. He wants our heart. He wants us... He wants everything about us, and if that meant that we didn't come to church, yeah, that's fine, but it's also fine that we come to church. We need to fellowship with one another. We need to be in God's Word. Can we be saved without all of that stuff? Yeah, I guess you can be. 
you're going to be a baby Christian for the rest of your life and never grow. But didn't you say if you do that, then you won't get all these points up in heaven, too? Well, something like that. I mean, you know. My picture, my picture is they'll be crawling around heaven as a baby, baby spirit. That's my my weird, weird vision. There, but it, the more you grow, the more, the more solid you'll be in heaven. I really believe that. I mean, you'll be. If nothing else, there's positions in heaven as well. Now, then you get the person that gets really smart. Well, I'd rather be in heaven and be polishing the streets of gold and not, than not make it in. And I agree with that. That's, being in heaven is better than not being there. But, you know, I'm just crazy enough that I want as many blessings as I can have and as rewards as I can have and have some position in heaven. Now, whatever that means, I don't know. I don't know what it means in heaven to have a position. But the Bible's very clear that there are going to be rewards in heaven. You know, he talks about the person to, to the, to the, gave the parable of the talents where the ten, one with ten talents doubled it and, and got said, well done. And, and then take from, the one, take from the one who didn't and give to the one. And he, and he said very clearly that from whom, you know, that you'll, be, that you'll get those rewards. So there's some kind of reward system in heaven. And what it means, we're in a sinful state. We don't, you know, we know what it means in this world to have rewards and be elevated above everybody else. And sometimes our, our flesh gets involved in that, and we say, well, I want to be that. But God is there, and he says, there's reward. And what those rewards in heaven mean, I don't know. But he's building, he's building a suite of rooms in, in, in heaven for us in the Father's house, which are going to be decorated with the works that we allow him to do. And I've, and I've described that as maybe you know somebody has the cellar, the cellar uh, one-room studio at the bottom of the... <laughs> Of the, of the house. Now, being in heaven in the studio is better than not being in heaven, but wouldn't you want to be in the penthouse? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, penthouse with a whole suite of rooms rather than the, the cellar studio. And that's the mentality on it. You know, but again, yes, being, being there is better than not being, you know, being in the, the smallest accommodation in heaven is going to be a whole lot better than not being there. So, but God is... God has got the book full of ideas of let's go serve. Let him do works in us. That he's building these, these suite of rooms for us to dwell in. And for all of eternity, I think I'd rather have a suite of rooms than just a, a little one-room apartment. <laughs> but again, one-room apartment in heaven is a whole lot better than, than the alternative. <laughs> Your little mind can go crazy thinking about what it's going to be like up there. And it's going to be so much more than anything we think about. So I, and I have very little imagination, so it's easy to be more than what I have. But I know people who have very vivid imaginations, but it's still going to be greater than what they, what they can come up with. Or it could be totally the opposite. I mean, it could be really better than what you're thinking. Well, it's going to, that's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whatever you're thinking, it's going to be more than. And it's the same thing that I've shared before. Whatever we think about God, he's more than. And three years ago, when, he's, when I'm realizing he's more than what I thought about now, he's still more than that. 80 years from now, if I live to be, <laughs> live to be 130, he'll be more than whatever I've got him at, at that point. He's always going to be more than whatever I can imagine. Because he's, he is God. And he's going to be more. He's bigger than anything I can, can, than I can fathom. Because he is so much more. <laughs> We can't, in our earthly brain, think of anything that will be God. How big is God? You know, whatever, whatever number you, however big you think God is, multiply it by a gigaplex, and he's bigger than that. 
Okay? He's bigger than anything that we can think of by, you know, an unlimited amount beyond that. Well, there's so many things you think, if I think, like, what happened if you die during the grade 50, 70 years? Well, you remember everything when it's time to go up there, you know, I mean, like... Well, to be absent, know. be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yeah. Now, what that, how much we will remember, how much we don't remember is going to be, we, we will be in his presence the moment our body dies. See, that's what I, I've been um, always thinking of that way. Yeah. And some people say it's wrong, and I said, well, this yeah. is how I think. Paul said that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. The moment the body dies, we will be in his presence. Now, what body we will have at that time, I don't know. Until the resurrection, you'll have some other body. But we will be with God at the moment that we die. And that's hard to fathom, too. I think that's weird. And, and what rec how will people recognize us? Because somehow they'll know us. Because I've said this over and over. I've been walking with God for, for over 40 years. There are people that know me as a teenager. There's people that know me as a child. There's people that know me as a 20-year-old. You know, so we look, we look at all of that. And how, how do people know us? Who knows how God's going to let them know us? But they're going to know us. You all know the 50-year-old me, and if you saw me at 20 years old, you probably wouldn't even recognize me because I was at least I was more I was more than half of who's here, you know, less than half of who was here, you know, when I was 20. Uh, so you didn't want to know me when I was 20. But but that's the idea. But that's the idea. How will people know us? God God will recognize God will recognize us. Will allow us to be recognized. He probably put some information into our head. But you look at on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah showed up with Jesus, the disciples, uh, you know, Peter, uh, John, and uh, I want to say James. Anyway, the three disciples that were with him recognized Moses and Elijah. How did they recognize him? Had they had pictures of him sitting in their on their desks? Probably not, because the Jews didn't make pictures of people and and so that they could be worshipped. So. They just, God showed them and told them who they were. And I think that's what it's going to be in heaven. See, that's another thing that's weird, because back then they had no pictures. Like, how did they know? Well, they would paint pictures and stuff usually. Yeah. But, but all, when we get to heaven, we will know each other because God will let us know each other. We're going to know Adam and Eve. We're going to know Moses. We're going to know Elijah. We're going to... When you get to heaven, you're not going to be accusing her of anything. No, so. It was all your fault. <laughs> but God says that we'll know, know each other. And how that will happen, I don't know. I don't know. And not just that, his, the whole world from the years, that's a lot of people. And all the other people that we never have met that we'll know. People that we want to meet because we've read their story somewhere. There's people I want to meet that I've read their stories, not just biblical story people, but different biographies that I've read, people that I've read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs and say, I really want to meet this person because of how they stood out for, for God and, and, and were martyred. I want to meet this, this leader that I've read his book. You know, I want to read this, this scholar and just, I want to meet this guy because I've, I've used his material as much as I have. You know, there's people I want to meet that are more, more recent than biblical people just to get to know them and say, what was your story? I love testimonies from people. I love to know how people came to Christ, and it'll be fun. It'll be fun to get to know, 
to talk to people in heaven, how did God bring you to him? What, was, what, what did he use? How did he get you there? How, how, did, how did you feel as you were being led in this? You know, just, I think there's going to be some great stories in heaven with the testimonies of how God worked. There's going to be millions of people to go talk to over the years. You know, you'll spend a long part, good portion of the eternity just getting to talk to all these people and hearing their testimony. Following back over all the different people that lead the chain to how they were ministered to. And seeing how God worked in this long list of people from, from one person to the next to the next to the next, which then leads to this, this person who was an evangelist and saved you know, led thousands or millions to the Lord and then led to somebody else who became an evangelist two or three links down the road. Can you just picture what that's going to be like? To hear the testimonies, to see what God, how God worked and the miraculous things that happened. And then to be able to see them from the spiritual side of things. Now, it's been said, and I agree, that if we saw what was going on in the spirit world around us, we'd be terrified. Because we are in a battle. And you don't go into a battle without that slight amount of terror with, about what's going on. There is a battle going around all the time. There's a battle going on around this room right now because God's word's being lifted up. And Satan is not going to want that to happen. So there are, there are activities all around us that we're not aware of. Because we're in Christ, we don't have to be fearful of that, but there is battles going on. Something as simple as the story we tell about the tie rod breaking on the van that Lynn's driving. Okay? A tie rod breaks and she makes three turns. <laughs> now, we know darn well that there was an angel turning that wheel because you cannot turn a car with a broken tie rod. It's not your time yet. And we know there was a tie rod because it dug into the ground on you know, all three turns and it was stuck in the, in the asphalt when, I, when I'm examining the car. <laughs> okay? So there is war going on around us and spiritual battles going on around us all the time. And if we were to be aware of everything that was going around us, we'd probably be terrified. All the attacks, all the, all the blocks of the... the God's, God's side is blocking all, so much attacks. And we see that all of this going on around us, and it's very strong. Verse 32, the humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. Going back again, the praise of God. The humble will see that God is pleased. And they will be glad, and their heart will live to seek God. They won't take joy in what's in them being lifted up. And I see this that sometimes when people, when somebody will applaud or tell, tell a speaker, that was a great job, and they'll, and, they'll, and they'll do this, oh, it was all God, it was all God. Well, of course it was all God. <laughs> you, know, you know, we know that if it was worth anything, it's from God. Mm -hmm. But the humble will just say, God, thank you. And that's the one thing pastors get taught, you know, just learn to say thank you and go forward. Don't get a big head because somebody thinks you spoke well because it wasn't, if, it, if, they, get, if they were blessed from you, it wasn't you speaking, it was God speaking. And unless you're a great orator, which most pastors are not great orators, there's a handful of great orators, but most of them are just very humble men that's seeking after God and trying to lift God up. And when they speak and God uses them, it's a great, great privilege. And they just need to learn to say thank you and say, and just know in their heart, it's God. It is God. 
And I know, and I know that that's where we all need to be. When God does something for us and through us, it's God. When we do something for the church, for, for God, it's not to make us look good. And if it's to make you look good, you've wasted your time because you get your glory here. You know, if, you wanna, if you're trying to make yourself look good, you've got your glory. You've got your praise. You've got, you've got whatever reward you, you were seeking because you got what you were seeking. I'm looking to be glorified. You know, lift me up, people. Look how well. Look at me. Look how good I am. I can, I can teach, or I can, I can serve, or I can do this. And God says, No. You, you are to let Him be lifted up. And Jesus said, If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. So we always want to lift Jesus up. Lift Him up. Show Him. Plus that, I think always, no matter what you do, I would think there's somebody better than me. So. And that's a good way to think of it. There's always somebody. Oh yeah, that's just better. Yeah, or worse, both either direction. I don't think that way. <laughs> well, I'm saying if you're sinning, yeah, yeah. always remember there's somebody that sins worse. So don't get yourself too far down in the dump. So it's, but yes, there's always somebody that can sing better, paint better, uh, pull weeds better, <laughs> teach better, uh, whatever it might be that you're doing to serve God. There's always somebody who can do it better than themselves. But if God's in it, it's going to be good. The only thing I can do better is I can eat cookies better. <laughs> but, but God is saying he needs to be lifted up. And, we're, and we want to lift him up. And, and it says, your heart shall live that seek God. We want to seek God always. Always seek after God. You know. And this whole idea of seeking God, you know, inquire after him. Really seek him. And the idea of this word for seek here is, not that I'm kind of just looking around corners, but I'm actually digging deep to find him, okay? Inquiring of him, you know. It, it, it's the idea of the detective trying to find the criminal where they're, they're pulling up every little clue that they can find to find God. Not that he's hiding that hard, but that's the, the picture of it. The picture there is to really seek after God in a very intense way. And it's not, a, okay, God, are you over there? No, you're not there. Okay, no, I've stopped. <laughs> you know, no, it is pull things apart. Go, go look in the corners and un, you know, look for the clues and find him. <laughs> That's the picture being brought here. And you know, you know what I mean in that. You know, you're either seeking God or you're not, really. And people who seek God, when we've sought God, and that's when we're in a hard, tight place, that's when we really want it, when it's hard to seek. It's pretty easy to seek him and find him when everything's going good, because we're already in a good, good frame of mind. It's easy to find God then. The hard time to find God is when everything seems to be going wrong, and, and you're kind of going, God, where are you? <laughs> seek him out. Find him. Turn to him. Praise him. Sing to him. <laughs> And, and yet, that's the very time when we so often will pull back from God and say, God, uh, you know, it's pretty miserable. Where, where are you? And that's when we'll kind of go back into this default. And it's so easy. God, you're, you've let me down. You know, all this bad stuff is happening to you. The moment we should be turning to him, we kind of go, God, it's all, everything's wrong, and I, I kind of go off the wrong direction. And we see this when somebody sins and they've fallen down on their face and they kind of, Oh, well, I got to go. I'm ashamed. I got to hide from God. And you watch them drift further and further away from God. And you go, no, that's a time when you draw closer and closer to God. You see people who basically start drifting out of church. 
And, and from, from the way it happens is you see somebody sitting on the front row of a church a lot of times, and then you start watching them go back further and further back in the church, and you're going, okay, and that's the time when a pastor starts going, okay, I need to really find out what's going on in this person's life, because they keep, oftentimes they'll keep going back and back until they're out the door, and you don't see them for a couple months, if ever again. And so you have to be ready for that and say, okay, what's happened here? And try to draw them back to God. Because it's really easy to say, God, I, I have, a lot of times it's because we failed. God, I have failed. I can't forgive myself. And obviously, if I can't forgive myself, you can't forgive me. And that is not a true statement. God is standing there. I've forgiven you. Draw close. Come into my arms and just let me love you and, and bring you back. And yet we as humans go, I've got to get as far away as this part. And part of that is because we feel guilty. We feel guilty, and when we draw close to God's righteousness, we feel, feel like he's judging us, and God is not judging us. He wants us to come back. He's the father that says, I love you so much. Keep, I'm going to give you, I'll, I'll bring you back. He's the, prod, he's the father welcoming the prodigal son that goes off and lives in riotous living, wasting his money away, and saying, welcome back. Here's a, we're going to have a feast for you. You're still my son. I love you. That is the way God deals with us. And yet in our flesh so often we'll go, oh, God's not going to want to be around me. And, and, and most of it is based in the fact that we do not forgive ourselves, And we don't understand his love. And that's why I, I keep hammering on his love is so important because the more we believe in his love, the more we're going to come back to him when we do something wrong and say, God, I just want to love you. I want, to, I want your forgiveness. And we come back to him rather than being pushed away by our own self. It's not him pushing us away. We try to push ourselves away. And we've seen that in our own life sometimes with our own parents or something when we've disappointed or if there's somebody you really love and you've disappointed them. You really don't want to be back in their presence because you're just so afraid they're going to condemn you for that disappointment. And unfortunately in the world sometimes that happens. The person that you love and you were trying to give pleasure to that you disappointed pushes you away. But God is not going to do that. He is the perfect parent who loves us. He's the perfect parent that says, welcome back. I still love you. Yes, you disappointed me, but we'll do better next time. Because we can't do anything that's going to please him anyway. That was all this morning's message about grace. It's all him. And the more we realize that it's all him, the better off we're going to be. When he uses me and good things happen, it's him. When I fail, he says, well, quit, quit living in the flesh and come back to me because it's all me. He's the one that gives us the strength. He's the one that gives us the, the knowledge. He's the one that empowers us. He's the one that lifts us up. He's the one that makes us able to come to heaven. He's the one that gives us the rewards because of what he, we, he does through us. So anytime our flesh gets involved, it's like he's saying, Get rid of the flesh and just get back over here. Get, this, get that flesh up on the cross and get back over here. And he forgives us. And most of the time, we, don't under, we do not understand the, the love and the grace that God has for us. No matter how, again, that's one of those things, no matter how much we understand it, we still don't understand it. It's, his grace and his love is deeper than any understanding we have of it. No matter how much grace I think, how much I think I know grace, he's going to show me that I don't understand grace. No matter how much I think I understand his love, he's going to show me that I don't even begin to understand his love. 
because it is so infinitely more than anything I can think of. And he's going to keep showing me more and more, and then I can learn to live more and more in whatever he's showing me. And then, as a, a five years from now, when I think I have so much of his love and grace understood, he's going to show me, no, you don't even understand it yet. It's, it's more. And he deepens it. And we see how far he goes. God is so much more than anything we can comprehend. All of his aspects. His holiness, his righteousness, his power, his, his size, his knowledge, his love, his grace, his mercy. All of him is so much more than anything that we can comprehend. And when we think we know anything about it, he'll show us that it's more. He'll show us that it's more. The more I think I understand his love, he'll show me you don't even begin to understand my love. And how does he do that? A lot of times he puts people that need love. <laughs> he says, I've shown you love, now you get to show your love, and he gives us this person that's very hard to love. I've shown you grace, and then he puts somebody in our life that needs grace so that we can apply what we've learned. And then when we think we've got that down, we've learned to give love and grace to that individual, he'll give somebody even that needs a little bit more love and grace so that we can practice his love and grace to them. So learn and learn when he'll put somebody in us that needs forgiveness. And teach us, you've got to learn my forgiveness. And we learn the depth of his love. We learn the depth of his grace. We learn the depth of his forgiveness because he keeps putting difficult people in our life. And, and sometimes we think about, wow, God, this has been a very hard person. And then he goes, just wait till the next one comes along. <laughs> you know, and this is what I said. He puts us through all these trials. He puts us through all these tests. Not to try to destroy us, but to teach us to be more like him in all that we do. And when we pass through that test, the good news is he's got a bigger, harder test to come. <laughs> but he's the one that's going to give that success to that test, too. You know, but so it's good. It's scary. Just think of some of the difficult people in your life. What, what would have happened if you would have met them when you first got saved? You probably would have killed them. <laughs> you know, God, I just can't handle this person. I, you know, they, they need to get out of here. Yeah, you know, but... Ten years from now, you look back and say, wow, that person was pretty easy compared to who he's putting in my life now or what he's doing in my life now. This is always going to be more and more. How can he make us more like him? And to do that, he puts us into trials and temptations. Ten years from now, he's so much older. I'll be having my cane. Get out of here. <laughs> beating, beating, beating him with your cane. But... But God is going to keep doing that. He's going to keep bringing new trials in so that more of him will come out of us. And then because more of him is coming out of us, he needs to make the trials harder to get more of him to come out even more. That's why I started later, and that's why he said, I'm going to make you pay for it. <laughs> when I get older, he's going to really give me trials. <laughs> Verse 33. For the Lord hears the poor and despises not his prisoners, or the bound ones in this case. Uh, do you remember when we, for those who were in the Truth Project, that uh, Del Tackett talked about the lost being as POWs, bound prisoners in a, in a camp that's, that is, they really belong to God, but they're in the camp, they're in a prison camp with Satan, bound up in a, in a prison camp where they're not free. God doesn't despise the prisoners. He's reaching out. He's reaching out to the lost. He reaches out to those people that we're going, God, they're just so bad, I don't want to even go talk to them. And he's going, I want them. 
I want the most hurt ones. He hears the poor. He hears us when we pray. And we are poor in, in our spirit. But he wants to help. He wants to reach out to people. And he wants to reach the, the lost. He wants to reach the most lost person. The, the worst person that you can possibly think of, he wants that person. Do you realize that for many of us, you know, that we think of somebody like uh, Osama bin Laden or Hitler or you know, these different people that have been, been done terrible things, God wants them as well, wanted them as well. And maybe even got them. Who knows? We don't know because we don't know what happens in their last part of their, their, their last hours. But the most evil person you can possibly think of, if they say at the last moment before they die, God, forgive me, I need you as my Savior, they'll be in heaven. Because it's all grace. It's all God's grace. See, that's what's hard to really understand. Well, it's very hard to understand. We as humans can't figure that one out. God, how can you accept somebody that just screams out at the last possible second of their life that they need you? And they were murderers all along, you know. And yet he says, they're mine. I paid the price. And it all comes down to the fact that Jesus paid the price for sin. It's nothing that I can do. And this is why grace is so important to us. It's nothing that I have done. I do not deserve going to heaven no matter how long I've worked with God, no matter how pure I've made my life or, or you've made your life. I don't deserve anything from God except judgment. And again, I said it this morning. You could have lived your entire life doing everything right and one sin deserves judgment. And we've got to grab hold of that. Because if we understand that, we can deal with the person who is really, really bad because it's all grace. The one person, whoever it is that we know that we think is so bad that I don't even want to go talk to them, God says, I want them. And he may tell us to go talk to them and give them, give them God's grace. Give them, give them the gospel message. Doesn't mean they're going to accept it, but God wants the message given to everybody. And great great things can happen. The great testimonies of people who get saved who are really, really, really bad. Uh, Nikki Cruz in the, from the book The Cross and the Switchblade was talked to by David Wilkerson, big gang leader in New York. You know, he was the meanest of the mean, you know, and yet God kept telling him, you go talk to this guy. <laughs> Nikki got saved. Nikki Cruz got saved and is now, now a pastor from gang, gang, gang leader to pastor over the years. We never know what God will do with somebody who really gets See, truly that caught I up. I can understand, but when somebody just like a suicide person that killed everybody, and then at the very last minute, ask them for, that's what's hard to understand. It's hard because we don't yeah. fully understand yeah. God's grace. The more we understand God's grace, the, the, the less we're going to be bothered by that. I've had people tell me, if God will, will, God will accept a murderer to heaven, then I don't want to be there. Well, all right, you go be in hell with all the rest of the murderers that didn't accept him. I mean, the statement makes no sense. You know, I'd rather be in heaven with a murderer who's accepted God than be in hell with all the other murderers that rejected God. It just doesn't make sense. But it's a lack of understanding of God's grace and, and who we are. Because usually what... What that statement will tell us is that we don't really know that we are lost sinners without Christ. And that my sin demands the punishment that the murderer gets. Because we as humans have this little ranking. A white lie is okay. Uh, 
you know, a little lie above the white lie is okay, but man, when you start telling those whoppers, you know, that's, you know, you're, you're getting up there. No, God says it's a lie. <laughs> okay, matter of fact, when we were reading Proverbs, if you remember from the Proverbs study, he said that if you don't tell the whole truth, you've lied. Oh, no, excuse me, that was Leviticus, you know. Uh, if you haven't told everything that you know that you're lying, okay, we don't like that, do we? Because so often we say you don't have to tell everything that you know, and yet God says not telling it is lied, okay? And, but we put these little gradients in there saying, well, I just didn't, you know, I didn't tell everything I knew, so I didn't really lie, but I didn't tell everything. And then, then there's that little white lie that's, you know, trying to protect, their, protect their, you know, their emotions or, you know, and then there's these just little lies. They're not really that big, you know, and then we get, you know, we keep going up. And God's saying, hey, you didn't tell, you didn't tell the truth. You didn't tell what you knew. Okay, and remember we talked about that in Leviticus, that if you don't tell what you know about something, then you were lying. And our court system is, all, is really based on, if you've ever been to court and had a lawyer represent you, the lawyer says, you answer the question that they ask and nothing more. Okay, you don't tell them everything you know about the topic. You, know, you tell them just what they asked. Because somebody might get you know, in trouble if you told everything you know. And that's how our legal system is based. And that's a lie already then. And it's a huge lie. Yeah. And especially when the oath is to tell the truth, the nothing whole the truth, truth, and nothing but the truth. So basically, you have perjured yourself by not telling the whole truth. They don't do that anymore. Yeah. So, well, they still have the, you still have the swearing in. Yeah. But you see, what, you see how we as, as humans have all these different gradients. You know, yeah, well, and Jesus went on and made it even deeper. In the, if you have a lustful thought, you've committed adultery. If, you have an ang if you're angry with a brother, brother without cause, you've committed, mur committed murder in your heart. Now, the consequence is different, obviously, you know, for an actual offense. But he says, as far as the guilt before God, probably everybody in the world is, has been an adulterer and a murderer by Jesus' definition. Okay. Because there's always that person that you've had that, oh, wow, that person's really, you know, and you, you're not going to act on it, but just the thought pops into your head, you know, or you get so angry at somebody, and God says, as far as he's concerned, we're a murderer, as far as the guilt for sin. And this is why we've got to see ourselves in two ways. I mean, understand that we are perfect in God's sight because of Jesus Christ. But by the same token, our sin, we have to understand that our sin is as bad as anybody else's. Even if I had not stolen and, and killed and, and pillaged or whatever other bad things you can think of, God says, your sin is still just as bad. Your sin is still worthy of, of death. But yet, the good news is, as Christians, God sees us as perfect. But then I think some people, if they really dig into it, they think, well, I can murder because then that's the same as just stealing. So, but see, that's why, that's why I say the consequence of actual doing is worse. I mean, a thought that I'm going to murder, God's going to say that is sin, but it's a big difference than actually going out and killing somebody, and, and that one demands the death penalty as far as God's concerned. It's an automatic. But, but even as, as we're Christians, we're under grace. There's a lot of people that believe that because you tell somebody they're under grace, that means they're going to go out and sin to their heart's content. Yeah. But if somebody can sin to their heart's content and not have any conviction, they don't know God. 
The more you know God, the more, even though you're covered by grace, the more you're going to just say, I want to serve you, God, because I love you so much. I want to, I want to please you. When you really, truly love somebody, you're not going to go out and purposely hurt them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and this is where, where we're at. If you love somebody, you're trying to do things that are good to them, that make them look good. To, you, want, you want to bring them gifts, you know. And, and it's not like you're trying to buy their love, you know. It's just, I want to just show you how much I love you and, and give you this gift. Uh, movie Fireproof. One of the criticisms people had on it, and if you haven't seen it, it's, it's about this, fam- this husband and wife that are drifting apart, and he's a fireman, and they're trying to bring their life together. Well, he wins her heart by taking the money that he was saving for a boat and buying stuff for her, her mom who's had a stroke. And most people go, well, look at that. This movie's saying that you, know, that, you have to buy, that you have to buy your love. No, that was not the whole point of this, because at the very beginning of the movie, he's saying, this is my boat. You're not taking any, you know, his love was on that boat that he wanted to buy. His love was showing that he can get rid of what he really And that was what he was really saying. It wasn't that he was buying her, 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 her affections. He was saying, I'm giving up what I want to please, to, for something that will please you. That's what God's looking for us, giving up what we want to, for what he wants. And that's our love back to him because he did that for us. He loved us by sending Jesus to pay for our sins, you know, giving everything, giving what he loved the most, his son, to buy us, so that he would show our love, show his love for us, so that then we can show love back to him by giving up what we, in our flesh and our and our desires, would like to do to serve what he wants to do. Very powerful way to show love. Very powerful. Give up what I want for him. Verse 34, let the heavens and the earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and and have it in possession. And this is just his very poetic way. Everything praise God. Everything praise God. You remember Jesus' answer when he was the triumphant entry and they said, you hear what these people are saying, stop them. (laughs) And he's saying, if they were to stop the very rocks themselves would declare praise because that was a turning point in Jesus's life the triumphant entry the the king coming in to to do what he had to do but there's all these places where all of creation is going to praise God and again maybe in the spiritual world the, the creation does praise God who knows <laughs> you know and it, because David talks about the trees clapping their hands and, and praising and all of, all, of, all of creation praising him. Who knows what happens in the spiritual world? Who knows what happens in a realm that we don't understand? And, but it says that God will save Zion. And what is Zion for those who remember that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one of the many names for Jerusalem. Then, and what's special about Jerusalem? It's the holy city, and what will happen in the holy city? Where the world will be ruled from. The world will be ruled from there for, for the millennial and for the new heaven and earth. It says the Jerusalem came down from, from, from heaven, and it will be where God will rule for eternity. Jerusalem is special to God. For whatever reason, Jerusalem has been picked by God, and it's special. And here he says, God will save Jeru- Zion and will build the cities of Judah, and they that that they may dwell there and have it in possession. 
God has that special place in the possession that he's going to have. The seed also of his servant shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. The whole area over there has some kind of special place. And when you think about, number one, how much room God told them they were going to have, you know, they were, they were going to have a very large area from the Euphrates all the way to the Mediterranean and down, down, all, down all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. So they have a very large area. And we think about the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. Does anybody remember how big that is approximately? Some kind of cube that's uh, very big. <laughs> 15,000, uh, uh, 1,500 miles each direction. Half of the United States is the easiest way to remember that. The United States is roughly 3,000 miles across. It'd be half the United States in size, all directions. Now, whether it's a cube or a, or a pyramid is, is debatable, but the bottom is going to be, be 15,000, and it's 15,000 high. Whether it's a pyramid with a point that high or an actual cube, we don't, it doesn't really specify. Most people think, think uh, a cube, but some, I've heard some say it's going to be a, tri uh, a pyramid, but it really doesn't matter. It's still big. It's still big. <laughs> it's still huge. I believe it's going to be a cube. I don't believe it's going to be a pyramid, but the Great Pyramids were there, so who knows? God gets the penthouse. And yeah, he gets the top, yes. <laughs> but God says his seed, his servants will inherit Zion and, and, the, and the, what would then be Judah, the, the, the promised land. And there will be no sea, no oceans on the, on the new, new heaven and new earth. And it will just be one large area ruled by God with us doing whatever it is we're going to do for eternity. <laughs> And it says that his name shall dwell there forever. His name. Just the power of God's name, the power of his, his love. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day, evening. We thank you for your love and your greatness and that you are bigger than anything that we can, can imagine. And we just ask you to be with us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.